welcome back once again into the Radiopedia reading room where we don't read books, we don't read poetry, we don't read palms, we don't even read tea leaves. This is a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me like a tearing pain between the shoulder blades, <laughs> it's my co-host Frank Gaylard. I was actually hoping to have a surprise intro for you, Dixon, but it all fell through. You know the scene in the TV show Scrubs where they go and scan a patient in the middle of the night on the CT scanner and the radiologist comes in from home wearing a nightgown and he's like, (laughs) these are my machines, my machines, over and over again. Yeah, I know that one. I found the actor is on Cameo, you know, that website where you can ask people to give messages. So I was going to ask him to read out an intro. For ours, including him shouting my machines, I guess. I was going to do it. It was only like 150 bucks or something for a video message. Oh, hey, that's worth it. But then uh, it turns out the commercial use, like in a podcast or something, that he charges a couple of thousand dollars and then the license is only for 15 days and it all sounded very complicated. So, sorry, the intros remain your duty. That is a lot of money. But what I'm hearing is my happiness is worth less than $1,000 to you. (laughs) (laughs) Your very transient happiness is worth less than 1000 Can I just say what I love about that scene from Scrubs, and maybe we'll play it at the end of the episode or something so people can hear it if they haven't heard it. It's a good example of comedic timing. So Dr. Moyer, he's screaming, you know, these are my machines. And as soon as he stops screaming that, Turk says, Whose machines? (laughs) The timing of it is perfect. It just sets him straight off into yelling, these are my machines, these are my machines, over and over again. And then Zach Braff turns to him and is like, how was that helpful? (laughs) Just It it reminds me, there's this one, I don't know if you've seen the movie Team America, World Police. Yeah, years ago, yeah. They have this spoof of the Broadway musical Rent in there. Mm -hmm. It's all about AIDS. And there's this song that everyone, the whole chorus line is singing at the end, okay, AIDS, 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 AIDS. (laughs) And there's this one, this one voice that you hear just slightly out of time with all of the other voices. (laughs) The very final AIDS. And it's just every time I hear it, it's just, an, I'll, I'll play that as well as we go to the main segment or something. It is just, you wouldn't have written it. Like it's not as yeah. if it's written funny. It's just the way in which the performer gets the timing perfectly correct. Timing is everything, Dixon. Have, uh, have you ever received or used a cameo? No, but I have seen multiple conferences on Twitter using, what's his name, Dr. Glockenflecken to record yeah. cameos to announce their event. You know, to me, it feels a little bit lame. I think this whole culture of celebrity endorsements and stuff just feels a bit weird to me. What about you? What do you think of Cameo? Ugh. The only Cameo I've received was from one of the networks that does advertising on Radiopedia. Actually, it was a network that's been trying to do advertising on Radiopedia. And so somehow they found out that I followed Formula One and they paid for a Cameo from the CEO of McLaren Racing. Zach Brown. Not Zach Braff. Zach Braff would have been a good Zach get. Braff would have been funnier. But yeah. So so he's just sitting there in his, you know, in a in a dirty t-shirt. He's unshaven. He's in his lounge room or in the kitchen or something. And he's clearly just sitting down to do a whole bunch of these. <laughs> and it's so uh it, it made me feel really dirty. Yeah. There's something about Cameo that these people that you you really like on on a TV show or whatever that for 150 bucks, they're like, hi there, Frank Galliard. <laughs> We're big fans of Radio P- uh, Radiopedia and uh, 
we'd love, you know, to keep doing it. And it's like, oh, how are you prostituting yourself for 150 yeah. bucks to do this? Um, having said that, maybe we should go on Cameo. Yeah, if anyone, <laughs> I can be your pimp, Frank. <laughs> Please send your request to me and I'll negotiate a price with Frank for him to read whatever you like. <laughs> I think you may have forgotten the premise of the intro for this podcast, Gayla, because the conceit is that I say something and then you have to guess the topic oh. for the day. <laughs> so today I said something about tearing pain between the scapula. Well, I mean, presumably that's aortic dissection, right? Yes. So yeah. why do we have to go through this whole rant about cameo? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, yes, today's episode, if people were hanging out for it, today's episode is about acute aortic syndromes. It's a readful episode and I was joined earlier in the week by trauma and emergency radiologist Dr. Craig Hacking for this one. And normally at this point, Frank, we do a quick game of spot the fake, but I reckon uh, this is quite a long episode, so we might skip that this week and just get straight into the main segment. So this is me reading the Radiopedia article on acute aortic syndrome to Craig Hacking. Let's listen in, and then Frank and I will be back for another chat, and let's listen to a little bit of AIDS, 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 <laughs> and learn a little bit about comic timing in the process. Everyone has AIDS, my grandma and my dog are blue. AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. Joining me now all the way from Brisbane, Australia, it's trauma and emergency radiologist, anatomy enthusiast and wannabe professional golfer. It's Associate Professor Craig Hacking. How you doing, mate? First appearance on the podcast. Yeah, g'day, Dixon. How are you? It's been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, well, finally invited you along. I thought you'd, you'd put your hand up very quickly as soon as we started. You'd be like, oh, yes, I want to come on, I want to come on. Yeah, I've, I've had a bit of a strange year. I've been taking some time off and just reassessing career goals and all that. But uh, I'm glad I've got some time in the second half of this year to, to continue to contribute to Radiopedia in, in multiple ways. And you know, thank you very much for the invitation to do this. Although I feel a bit unprepared because I'm quite thirsty. I haven't had time to make uh, my favourite cocktail. I see you're happily uh, enjoying one. Yeah, I've got a Negroni here. It's the traditional cocktail of the podcast, the official podcast cocktail. What would you have if you had the time to make one? Ooh, um, my two favourites kind of alternate, probably Sazerac and a, and a Manhattan, a perfect Manhattan. Mm. But uh, yeah, I like, I like rye-based cocktails. But, uh, you know, what's that? Is that number four or five for you? Just one, just one per podcast episode. Oh. That's enough. I did one podcast where I had two and uh, that got a little bit loose <laughs> towards the end. So I've learnt just one. But we, we should have that rye-based cocktail next time you're on. That sounds exciting. Yeah, I look forward to it. So I wanted to select an emergency radiology topic for this Readful podcast episode, Craig. And I remember back to a lecture that you gave about a year or so ago uh, that I really enjoyed, and that was on acute aortic syndrome. So I thought we might tackle that again today, if you're all right with that. Yeah, Dixon, that sounds good. So there's a main article for it on Radiopedia, and then there are three offshoot articles with more detail about each of the conditions. If I read all of them, that'd be too much and quite repetitive. And if I read just the main article, that would be too little. So what I've done is I've put together a little bit of a mix and match to read to you today, hacking, hopefully to get the right balance. And then if we have time, I'm going to throw in a couple of my little 
random questions as we go along. Should we uh, crack into it? Yeah, mate. No time like the present. (laughs) So, acute aortic syndrome describes the presentation of patients with one of a number of life-threatening aortic pathologies that give rise to similar clinical presentations. Exactly which entities are included under the umbrella term acute aortic syndrome varies somewhat from publication to publication. Three conditions are generally included, sharing epidemiological and clinical presentation, as well as having overlapping and sometimes coexisting imaging features. And they are, number one, aortic dissection, number two, aortic intramural hematoma, and number three, penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. And then it says, although some authors also include aortic aneurysmal rupture and traumatic aortic injury, this article will limit itself to the aforementioned three. That's the intro. Yeah, and it's quite a good intro, like a lot of the Radiopedia article intros, because it's a nice, concise summary uh, right from the very start. And what I like about it is it, it identifies that it's just not one pathology. We now know that there are a handful of pathologies that are all interlinked. Sometimes Mm. you have them uh, coexisting with each other. Some of them are precursors for other pathologies, but it really is important to understand that it is a syndrome based on a spectrum of pathological and imaging findings. And the epidemiology is is really the same for, for all of them, essentially. That's the next section of the article. So epidemiology. Generally, patients are elderly, more frequently male, and with a long history of hypertension. Additionally, connective tissue disorders, for example, Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, as well as bicuspid aortic valve and annuloaortic ectasia are risk factors, particularly for aortic dissection. And atherosclerosis is also a risk factor in the case of penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. They're the typical patients that we see, right? And anyone under, you know, 55, 60, you've really mm. got to consider, is there some underlying con- connective tissue disorder that's predisposing this patient to one of these pathologies? Uh, we'll move on to clinical presentation. So for all three conditions, patients typically present with acute aortic pain characterized by severe chest pain that has a tearing and sometimes migratory character. The location of the pain correlates with the location of pathology. So pain located anteriorly in the chest or in the neck and jaw typically denotes ascending aortic involvement, while pain in the back and abdomen suggests descending aortic pathology. And as we would expect, hypertension is often present at the time of presentation. There's often an overlapping syndrome where a couple of major diagnoses are being entertained by the clinicians, the main two being a myocardial infarct or some form of acute coronary syndrome, and the other is a PE. I mean, we've all been burnt by PE. It's got such a nebulous presentation. And sometimes you'll be doing a, a CT and you'll protocol it as a CTPA because clinically it's pointing a bit more towards a PE and you might mm. find uh, features of a aortic syndrome on the CTPA. So knowing that these three conditions can often have overlapping presentations is really important. Uh, the complications also from an acute aortic syndrome might be the presenting complaint as well, things like cardiac tamponade causing shock, uh, myocardial infarction because of a dissection and stroke if the dissection is involving the neck vessels going up into the head, critical limb ischemia as well, and occasionally spinal pathology. There have been cases well documented of paraplegia from dissection going down into spinal arteries, especially the artery of Adamkiewicz. Uh, I knew your anatomy knowledge would come in handy, Craig. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say that name. 
Well, I might test you out again because I'm going to summarize the pathology section for each of the three sub-articles now. But before I do that, maybe I can put you on the spot and ask you to give us a quick refresher on the layers of the aortic wall. This will come in handy. Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, So this is kind of med school stuff, isn't it? Where we learn about the three layers of any artery and Mm -hmm. it's the thickness and the function of these layers that change depending on what the artery is. But in general, there's an intimal layer, the innermost layer, and this is an endothelial lining of single cells, very highly connected. They have complex functions to do with blood flow and maintaining hemostasis. The second layer is, is the media, and this layer is made up of concentric smooth muscle and elastic fibres as well as collagen, and it's the elastic and collagen fibres which vary depending on which vessel you're dealing with. The mm. larger arteries also require blood supply because they're too thick to get normal diffusion through the intima, so they will have a vasovasorum, which are small vessels that enter through the adventitia, the third layer, and that adventitial layer is pretty much a lot of collagen. There are some cells in it, but it's mainly a fibrocellular matrix and it's got a very highly important supportive role. I think you've mentioned all of the the key words that are going to be relevant to describing the pathology for these three conditions. I'm going to do each one. So the first one is aortic dissection. In aortic dissection, blood enters the medial layer of the aortic wall through a defect in the intima and tracks longitudinally along the media, forming a second blood-filled and flowing channel, the false lumen, within the vessel wall. A second re-entry intimal tear may develop, allowing the blood to flow back into the true lumen. The pathogenesis is usually medial degeneration secondary to hypertension, as we've heard, leading to the intimal tear, or via penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, which we'll come to shortly. The next one is aortic intramural hematoma. So this is a contained hemorrhage into the aortic wall, usually from spontaneous rupture of the vase of a sorum, which you just described, without an intimal tear and therefore without flowing blood in a false lumen. So just blood within the actual medial layer. Alternate mechanisms for the development of intramural hematoma include thrombosis of a false dissection lumen, progression from a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, and traumatic medial injury. An intramural hematoma weakens the aorta and may progress either to outward rupture or inward disruption of the intima, the latter leading to aortic dissection. So you can already see there's some interrelatedness between those first two. And then the third uh, of our aortic syndromes is the penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. So the pathology for that is an ulcerating atherosclerotic lesion that penetrates the intima and progresses through the internal elastic lamina into the media. While they may resolve or be stable, they can also progress into intramural hematoma and aortic dissection, saccular aneurysms, and spontaneous aortic rupture. There you go. Yeah, and these three, like you said, are all interrelated, so much so that I had some old cases on Radiopedia where I just went, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a dissection with maybe a little bit of intramural hematoma. And then preparing that talk that I presented last year, I went back over these cases, and the closer you looked, the more you could describe a couple more of these interrelated pathologies. And like we said right at the start, this is why it's so important to identify it as a spectrum. So the final little bit uh, in this pathology section is classification. 
Uh, so acute aortic syndromes, be they dissections or intramural hematomas or even penetrating ulcers, are classified by location according to the Stanford classification. So type A involves the ascending aorta or the arch with or without descending aortic involvement. And type B is confined to the descending aorta. So no involvement of the ascending aorta or the arch, just the descending aorta. And it arises distal to the origin of the left subclavian artery. And I think you remember B is beyond the left subclavian, right, Hacking? That's right. Beyond the brachiocephalic vessels. And then the DeBakey classification system can also be used, although I think the Stanford is probably used more commonly these days. Is that right, Craig? Yeah, absolutely. And DeBakey originally described three types, but I think pretty quickly the Stanford A and Stanford B took over because it's so simple in the way that it guides immediate management, which we'll talk about later. Now, before we move on to the next big section of this article, Craig, which is the radiographic features, uh, it's time for a random question. You ready? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) All right. What is your favorite imaging study to report? I reckon I can guess this one. It's going to be something trauma. Oh, anything normal. <laughs> no, uh, in seriousness, yeah, it's it's kind of exciting to be in the room when a big traumatic pan scan is occurring and the and there are doctors and nurses flying everywhere and you, you're kind of holding the answers, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. So I like being involved with hot reads like that, gets me off my chair and gets me into the CT room to, to talk with and collaborate with clinicians. So that's pretty good. How often are you are you doing that kind of hot read? Uh, I would say if I'm in the emergency reporting room all week, I would say nearly once a day. Okay. Yeah. And maybe maybe I tend to want to do that. I certainly do it with strokes. We're a major clot retrieval centre, and so there's quite a lot of strokes that we got to get out of the chair and, and give them a, a hot read. But yeah, hand scans, are, I think, are quite exciting. I also like the, the run-of-the-mill emergency limb x-rays for you know minor trauma fractured ankles and fingers and thumbs and feet and most of the time it's obvious and that you know the janitor walking behind you will tap you on the shoulder and say wow look at that knee fracture sometimes you do pick up that subtle injury and it can feel quite good because you check and the patient's already gone home and a clinician has looked at the imaging and thinks that it's normal so it's quite satisfying to know that I have an extra level of experience that allows me to find those subtle injuries and hopefully help the patient. And have you got a least favourite study to report? <laughs> well, everyone does. Uh, yeah, when, you've, um, when you're doing an emergency and you've reached that you know, mid-morning or before lunch, fifth or sixth pan scan, that can be quite annoying and you're just rolling your eyes. Often it's for such a minor indication mm. and, oh, you know, we've got to scan them on mechanism alone and then you've basically can report it in one sentence as normal or the worst is you know the 90 year old that's had a minor fall and they've got nothing traumatic but just a long list of incidentals and things you've then got to follow up and they do the carotids and you've got to look at every single image and find the incidental tiny aneurysm yeah 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 no uh should we move on to the the big section here so the radiographic features yeah let's do it Imaging of suspected acute aortic syndrome typically involves CT of the chest, as it is readily available, fast to acquire, has been shown to have very high sensitivity and specificity, and is able to image not only the aorta, but also the remainder of the neck, chest, and abdomen. MRI and transesophageal echocardiography are helpful in some situations, however, access is usually more restricted. 
So the articles cover more than just CT, but for today's podcast, we're just going to focus on the CT. And first, we'll cover technique and the imaging rationale for acute aortic syndromes in general. And then we'll look at the specific findings for these three separate but interrelated conditions. Starting with CT technique, the article says, although exact imaging parameters will depend on individual and institutional preferences, typically patients are imaged with biphasic or triphasic CT. And then we break this down into non-contrast, arterial phase, venous phase, and delayed phase. So for non-contrast, we use that to assess for hyperdense intramural hematoma, displaced intimal calcification within the aortic lumen, and to help differentiate hemopericardium from pericardial effusion. We'll come back to some of these later. The technical considerations for non-contrast CT in low-risk patients or if dual energy CT is available, then you can use virtual non-contrast imaging instead and the non-contrast phase can be omitted. Yeah, just with that, Dixon, that's that's interesting. I've got quite a bit of experience with spectral CT uh, in a previous emergency tertiary uh, level hospital and now in a different tertiary level emergency department as well that has dual energy CT and the virtual non-con is very good. It's not perfect, but the tip I would have is make sure you, you run your virtual non-contrast algorithm off the CT that has the least amount of contrast in it. So we run it routinely off the portal venous phase. Anytime you're running a virtual non-con recon from an arterial phase, and we also see it in the delayed phase in the renal tract, because the contrast is so bright in the renal tract or with a CTA in the vessels, Often the virtual non-con algorithm struggles a bit to remove all that. So yeah, there's a good tip. Try and use the portal venous phase. Nice one. Uh, so the next one is the arterial phase, and that is used to assess, obviously, the morphology of the dissection and the ulcer, as well as side branch patency, so all the vessels coming off the aorta. The technical considerations for the CTA Preferably right arm injection to avoid streak artifact from undiluted contrast in the brachiocephalic vein. A three to five millimeter per second flow rate is used, followed by a saline flush. Non-gated CTA will cause motion or pulsation artifact of the aortic root, but high pitch rates and wider detector arrays can minimize this. So you might want to consider using cardiac gating to remove the pulsation artifact and it also allows for better assessment of the coronary arteries. Do you gate yours, Craig? Yeah, interestingly, the hospital I've just left don't traditionally gate any of their CTAs unless the story is very typical. And if you do find a dissection or some kind of aortic pathology on the non-gated, they're happy to go back and do a gated study of the aortic root, whereas the new facility I'm at, gate everything. It really depends on your department and your expertise, what you're comfortable doing. I don't mind either. Uh, also, there are dose implications, uh, but some of the newer scanners are so good at rapid gating. Mm. They have dose minimization techniques, so we're seeing uh, not so much of a dose penalty now with gating. Uh, the next phase is the venous phase, and this is used to assess distal organ enhancement and perfusion. So, you know, a portal venous phase in the abdomen to look at those kidneys and the liver and the spleen. And then the final one is the delayed phase. So this can help differentiate slow flow from pseudothrombosis and pseudodissection seen in some angiogram scans. 
So on the arterial phase, you might see some streak artifact, less likely to see that obviously on your delayed phase. So it might help you get rid of that kind of thought. And in patients with prior TVAR, so endovascular repair of the thoracic aorta, delayed phase improves detection of slow endo leaks, like a type 2 endo leak. So definitely we use delayed phase when we're looking at uh, endovascular repairs and looking for endo leaks, but I'm not sure we use a lot of delayed phase in the, in the acute presentation of acute aortic syndrome. Yeah, and that's my experience as well. Delayed phase is pretty much only utilised in patients with a known history of intervention for aortic pathology. So we'll move on to the CT findings for the specific conditions. Okay, so we're going to do aortic dissection, then we're going to move on to do the intramural hematoma, and then we'll finish off with the penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. So aortic dissection, CT findings. So on non-contrast CT, the findings can be very subtle. You may see displacement of atherosclerotic calcification into the lumen due to the false lumen pushing it in. On CT angiogram, there are plenty of described signs. So you'll often see the actual intima itself, the intimal flap. You'll see the double lumen signs because you've got the true and the false. And then you'll have potentially dilatation of the aorta as a sign of aortic insufficiency. Another sign is the Mercedes-Benz sign or the triple barrel sign. So this, I think, is where you get, is this right, Craig, where you get a false lumen and then off the false lumen, you develop a second false lumen and that's where you get the three. Yeah, I think so. I haven't seen one myself apart from, you know, in exam preparation and, and radiopedia, so... Yeah, no doubt there's one on Radiopedia. And then the final little CT angiogram sign we have written here is the windsock sign. And I think that is where the false lumen is completely circumferential around the true lumen. So when you're looking at it in the axial plane. Yep. An essential part of the assessment of aortic dissection is identifying the true lumen as the placement of an endoluminal stent graft in the false lumen can have dire consequences. Distinguishing between the two is often straightforward, but not always a number of features are helpful. So we're just going to run through uh, ways to differentiate the true lumen from the false lumen here. So starting with the true lumen, this is often compressed by the higher pressure false lumen and therefore is often the smaller of the two. So contrary to what you might think, the true lumen is often smaller than the false lumen. The true lumen has outer wall calcifications and often it's contiguous with the aortic root. So that's a, that's a useful one, isn't it, Craig? If you follow it back to the aortic root, often that's where the true, that'll be the true lumen rather than the false lumen. Yeah, absolutely. And the other really useful one is that the origins of the celiac trunk, the SMA and the right renal artery almost always, in my experience, arise from the true lumen and that's supported in the literature as well. Whereas the false lumen... So this is often larger, as we said, due to the higher luminal pressures. Uh, it's often lower in contrast density due to delayed opacification, but it does depend a little bit on the phase you're looking at. But in the CTA, the arterial phase, the false lumen is usually lower density. Typical location, this is useful as well. So the false lumen is usually located in the right anterolateral aspect in the ascending aorta, and then it kind of spins around, doesn't it? And it becomes into the left posterolateral aspect of the descending aorta. So that's another useful little tip. Uh, the beak sign is the acute angle formed at the edge of the false lumen in aortic dissection. So if you see an acute angle there, that's a sign that you're looking at the, the false lumen. 
the cobweb sign. These are slender linear areas of low attenuation specific to the false lumen due to residual ribbons of media that have incompletely sheared away during the dissection process. So obviously you're not going to get those little little bits of media floating around in the true lumen. They're only going to occur in the false lumen. So if you see that cobweb appearance, that suggests you're looking at the false lumen. Uh, remember the false lumen may be thrombosed and seen as a mural low density. That's often in the setting of a chronic dissection. Uh, and the left renal artery, in contrast to what we said with the true lumen, the left renal artery is the one that typically arises from the false lumen. So that's the one that's more at risk of becoming ischemic. Yeah, there's a lot of them, aren't there? Yeah. Like with a lot of things in radiology, when you have to learn a long list, you're not going to see all of these signs in every case. You're going to see one or two You've just got to be aware that there are multiple ways to determine what is the true lumen and what is the false. One that's not really written there, which you know, I, I doubt I'll ever edit and put in the article because it's just kind of some dumb idea that I made up, but it seems to me when you're dealing with anything from the arch vessels down, on axial view, it just always seems like the true lumen we know is smaller and it's normally more dense. But to me, it's, it's round. It's like a full moon, whereas the false lumen, bigger, we know less dense we know, but it's more like mm -hmm. a quarter moon, like a banana encircling part of the circumference of that aorta when you're looking axially. So I guess that's kind of the beak sign, isn't it? Is. it? But, that, but just another way of putting it, you know, you're kind of looking for that, that banana kind of shape, those acute angles for the false lumen. Uh, then the article goes on and says, chronic dissection flaps are often thicker and straighter than those in acute dissections. And then we've got a little section here that says the CTA radiology report should include at least, and it just has a nice little checklist of things you should mention in your report, so I thought I'd read it out. So the proximal and distal extent of the dissection should be described. The location of the intimal tear, if you can spot it. Associated other forms of acute aortic syndrome, so whether there's intramural hematoma or whether you think there's a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. Uh, the aortic size, so the largest orthogonal measurement that's going to be useful for a risk of rupture, but also planning for potential endovascular treatment. Involvement and supply, so where the true and the false lumen run, and therefore which branches are coming off which. Presence of thrombosis in the false lumen. And finally, signs of organ ischemia or vessel occlusion. So a nice little checklist. So like you, I work in a an educational setting so we do a lot of training of of registrars or what the americans would call a resident in radiology and i just say those seven points and say describe from start to finish what's happening with this dissection and sometimes it's as simple as listing all the major arteries that come off the aorta and just saying true lumen false lumen true lumen false lumen I remember a, a case when i was very junior one of my colleagues at the time had reported a whole scan and, you know, the report was great, but what was missed was the fact that one of the femoral arteries was completely non-enhancing. You've got to look all the way down to the full distal extent and just make sure any branches are enhancing. Absolutely. You, you're concentrating on what's going on in the chest and, you know, in the aorta. You've got to remember to keep following it because it can head up into the carotids, can head down into the iliacs and down into the femorals. All right, we'll move on to the next one. So this is the aortic intramural hematoma, so the CT features. Uh, so this is the one where the non-contrast CT is particularly helpful. So acute intramural hematomas appear as focal, crescentic, high attenuating, so 60 to 70 Hounsfield units, regions of eccentrically thickened aortic wall on non-contrast CT. This is known as the high attenuation crescent sign. 
A narrow window width is essential for identifying subtle lesions. Intimal calcification may be displaced inwards, also best appreciated on the non-contrast phase, as opposed to mural thrombus, which will displace the calcification away from the opacified lumen. I've always thought that it shouldn't be called mural thrombus. It should actually be called like intraluminal thrombus or something. Like, you know, having this intramural, mural meaning wall, makes sense. But mural thrombus describing something that's stuck to the wall just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's a bit of a strange leftover term, probably being used for a long time before we had the imaging capability to assess at such fine detail the wall of the diseased aorta and find these acute intramural hematomas. So the wall hematoma will be low attenuation in relation to the aortic lumen on post-contrast CT and can be far more subtle, hence the importance of non-contrast CT in an acute aortic syndrome protocol. Unlike aortic dissection, no intimal flap is present on the CTA and no false lumen. Importantly, on follow-up imaging, contrast may be seen within an intramural hematoma in two scenarios. Now, this it says follow-up, but this can also happen on the initial acute scan as well, Craig. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So these two things are, I'll just list them first, so intramural blood pool, and the second one is ulcer-like projections. First time I heard these was when you were, were giving your lecture, Craig, and I think they're useful terms to kind of go through. So intramural blood pool, this is a small region of contrast accumulation within the intramural hematoma, often via a peripheral connection with an intercostal or lumbar artery, and there should be no or minimal communication with the true lumen. So it's not a dissection. This blood is thought to be coming in via an intercostal or a lumbar artery, so that little bit of enhancement from that. It often regresses with no adverse prognostic implications. So that's intramural blood pool, usually regresses, not a huge problem. And I like to think of these, once again in my simple, dumb mind, as little infundibuli that are in the wall of the aorta. We see infundibuli, particularly up in the circular willis, that can mimic a little aneurysm. But I see these in my mind as those little triangular or rounded, they're only one or two mil wide, bits of contrast in the wall, and often you'll find a little little vessel that leads into it. The ulcer-like projection is the second one. So ulcer-like projection, this is a new intimal disruption, so not present on the original CT if you have one. And this has a wide neck, and they're usually progressive, and they enlarge, and they herald a very poor prognosis. Craig, can you go into a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, to me, they're just the same as a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer that we're about to talk about, but without the Mm -hmm. atherosclerotic component. It's really important to be able to differentiate these two, the intramural blood pool versus the ulcer-like projection, because there is a substantial difference in their prognosis. And uh, it's probably best that we we chat about this after we talk about the penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. Oh, sounds exciting. All right, I'll move on to that one then. So penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. On CTA, the typical finding is a contrast-filled outpouching of the wall of the aorta or into the thickened aortic wall in the absence of an intimal flap or a false lumen. The protrusion is said to resemble a mushroom and can appear similar to an ulcerated plaque these can progress to an intramural hematoma and indeed often have an adjacent intramural hematoma. There is usually extensive atherosclerosis in other sites remote to the ulceration. So the idea here is that you have this atherosclerotic 
plaque which is on the wall of the aorta and then you get this ulceration into it and it goes so deep that it starts to penetrate through the intima into the medial layer. Is that right, Craig? Yeah, absolutely. And as we're about to learn, they can lead on to all kinds of trouble. So most commonly, penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers are located in the descending thoracic aorta. Ulcers of the aortic arch are less common and they are rare in the ascending aorta. There are no validated imaging features for the prediction of the course of a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. It can be difficult to determine if a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer is the source of a patient's pain or if it is an incidental finding. So I think something like 40% of them might be asymptomatic. In follow-up studies, an increasing maximal diameter and depth of the ulcer is an obvious sign of progression. However, there's currently no consensus for ulcer depth or diameter that warrants treatment. What are your thoughts on all that, Craig? Yeah, well, there's a lot there, isn't there? Um, it's it's quite heavy, but I suppose keep coming back to this. These are all interrelated entities that form the spectrum. So you can have one or multiple of these and they can lead on to each other. But just a couple of points. Uh, penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer uh, can lead on to intramural hematoma, which can obviously lead on to become a true dissection. They often are the precursor and guess what? They form in atherosclerotic lesions and these are in patients that typically are older and hypertensive. Now, in that talk that you've mentioned of mine last year, I'd put in a couple of slides about when to worry about these, when to worry about an ulcer, when to worry about intramural hematoma. And just to summarise those, any depth of greater than 10 millimetres of an ulcer, any diameter greater than 20 millimetres, that's enough cause to make you worry and I'm, I'm sure the vascular surgeons will worry along with me and mm-hmm. if there's association with an intramural hematoma and the intramural hematoma when do I worry well then when the thickness is greater than 10 millimeters when there has been subsequent increasing thickness if you have the ability to look at prior imaging and if there's an associated penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer or an aneurysm or an ulcer-like projection those two newer entities, the intramural blood pool and the ulcer-like projection, these we're seeing more and more of because of the technology that we're lucky enough to have at our fingertip in a lot of places, particularly in, in developed countries. The scanner technology is so good, the temporal resolution, the ability to give contrast is so good that we're seeing these lesions and we're seeing them how they contribute to progression of some of these entities. And they were probably miscalled intramural hematomas previously, but now, like I say, we're getting better at differentiating them. I recommend people definitely going off and having a look at some of the cases on Radiopedia that accompany these articles to try and get the visual aspect of how to differentiate between some of these. And one last comment about this, Dixon. When I prepared that lecture a year ago, I reached out to an amazing radiologist who unfortunately is no longer with us, Vincent Tatko. He did a couple of wonderful cases of dynamic diagrams that really describe the differences of all of these entities really well. So when you go to the the articles of these pathologies, you'll see his diagrams. So uh, shout out to him and, uh, and we miss you. Me too. So before we move on to the final section, which is treatment and complications, Craig, it's time for another random question. I reckon you're going to have an answer for this one because you love anatomy. Have you got a favourite anatomical variant? Oh, there are so many to choose from. Uh, It's always good to find a new one that you never thought 
existed? They kind of stay a favourite for a while until a new one. Like, I did, had you heard of a, a middle hepatic artery? Artery, no. Yeah, really. so like, that's isn't that just random? I found that out about two years ago. I've heard ago of a talking, middle hepatic vein. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> an obvious one, but there's a middle hepatic artery. I keep going back to vascular variants as my favourite and probably, because I've got a bit of a sentimental tie with it, would be a retroaortic left renal vein. I like them because I, before my radiology career, I did some uh, vascular surgery and orthopaedic surgery. And when I was acting as a vascular surgical trainee, we did a middle of the night ruptured AAA open repair and there was a retroaortic left renal vein. And I can remember the vascular surgeon being so pleased that we were able to see it on CT because the last thing that surgeon wants to do is put a cross clamp across the aorta and have an injury to that retroaortic renal vein because those big blue veins, they bleed like stink, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I quite like that. And that, that reminds me when we're reporting these vascular studies, it's really important to list some of those when they're relevant, or sorry, when they're present, is to indicate in your report that these variants actually exist. It reminds me of some of the ones in the in the paranasal sinuses as well that can really help the skull base surgeon avoid doing something bad to an internal carotid artery or an optic nerve if you if you describe the presence of them. Uh, so should we finish this thing off by going on to the the treatment and the complications? Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring it home. Treatment includes aggressive blood pressure control with beta blockers to reduce not only blood pressure but also heart rate and therefore relieve pressure on the aortic wall. The location of the pathology determines the need for surgery as classically defined, I like this sentence, as classically defined and simply put, pathology involving the ascending aorta is treated with emergency open surgery, whereas distal disease that spares the ascending aorta is treated with medical therapy and or endovascular stenting. So with regards to aortic dissection, immediate surgical repair is indicated for type A dissection or for complicated type B dissections. For Stanford A intramural hematoma, surgical treatment is offered to prevent rupture and progression to classic aortic dissection, which occurs in about 30% of patients. If you were to do medical management alone of type A intramural hematomas, that leads to a mortality of 40%. So hence, surgery is usually performed. For Stanford B intramural hematoma, conservative management is indicated. 77% of intramural hematomas regress at three years, and there's a survival of greater than 90% at five years for those Stanford B intramural hematomas. So the risk factors for progression of intramural hematomas and worse prognosis include the presence of ulcer-like projections, which we discussed earlier, intramural hematoma thickness greater than 10 millimeters, which you mentioned also, an associated aortic aneurysm, an increase in thickness of the intramural hematoma on follow-up CTA. And finally, with regards to penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, there's no set guidelines on when to treat. However, general principles are as follows. So the ascending aorta, although ascending aorta penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers are rare, they usually rupture and therefore early or emergent surgical intervention is recommended. So that fits again with our rule of Stanford A (laughs) equals surgery. A penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer in the descending aorta, if that's asymptomatic, 
then medical therapy in combination with close clinical and radiographic follow-up is indicated, a small neck width of a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer and lack of associated aneurysmal change are associated with successful conservative management, and you might get annual CT imaging follow-up for these patients. However, in the symptomatic patients or in patients with signs of progression of their ulcer, these are higher risk for spinal cord ischemia, and those patients are typically treated with uh, endovascular stent graft, so TVAR. Final little section, well, second last section actually, so complications. We'll just do this really quickly in general. So up to 30% of cases of acute aortic syndrome have complications at the time of presentation. These include rupture, no good, hemopericardium with tamponade, no good, aortic valve, dysfunction, no good, coronary artery dissection and or occlusion, no good, aortic branch dissection and or occlusion, and end organ ischemia or infarction. Yeah, none of those sound particularly good, do they? No. And then finally, the last little section that I pulled in from the three different articles and kind of summarized here is differential diagnosis. So just quickly, pseudo-dissection due to motion artifact or contrast streak can obviously mimic your aortic dissection. Atelectasis quite often hugs the descending aorta and can be confused for wall thickening if you're inexperienced. A thrombosed false lumen in chronic aortic dissection can be confused for acute intramural hematoma. So the thrombosed lumen typically spirals longitudinally, as we as we heard earlier, around the aorta, whereas an intramural hematoma usually maintains a constant relationship with the aortic wall and will be dense on the non-contrast CT. So that's one way of determining, you know, am I looking at acute intramural hematoma or am I looking actually at a chronic aortic dissection, which, which may not need further treatment. Aortitis can be confused for intramural hematoma. So aortitis typically shows concentric uniform thickening of the wall of the aorta with or without periaortic inflammatory stranding, whereas intramural hematomas, as we heard, are usually eccentric rather than involving the whole circumference of the wall. And then finally, I put here that a non-penetrating ulcerated plaque can be confused for a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, in which case, you know, you want to really try to determine if it's truly getting down into the media or not. But I think that can be a tricky one to differentiate. Craig, we've made it to the end of the article, mate. How was it for you? Yeah, it's, it was a long one, wasn't it? It's um, <laughs> a lot of overlap and uh, complexity there, but I think we did a good job. So other than people heading over to the Radiopedia articles and scrolling through some of the case examples and those awesome illustrations by Vincent Tatko, uh, any other little final take-home messages here, Craig? Yeah, I suppose just take your time because a lot of these pathologies can be rushed through and you're going to miss some of the subtleties. Uh, you do want to try and define what you're dealing with here, whether you're dealing with an ulcer-like projection or an intramural hematoma, or is there a dissection flap, or is there not, or is there a false lumen, or is there not? So it can take a bit of time. Use use all three planes, and actually I use MPR with vascular studies. I often like to look in the thin data set um, rather than you know three or five mil thick reconstructions. But yeah, just just take your time and have a have a list in your report of what you're trying to cover, so that you you don't miss anything. And the other thing I'd suggest is if you're not looking at a dedicated aortic study and you think there might be something unusual about the the aorta, then don't be afraid to to get the patient back for a dedicated 
aortic study to actually look at it in more detail. And also, don't forget, there's often past CT images on our patients. And if you spot a change in the appearance of the aortic wall, that can really change your assessment, right? So if the aortic wall has changed compared to the most recent scan, that's when you get worried. So don't forget to, to look for past scans. As always, the old adage of past imaging is a radiologist's best friend. Uh, well, that's it, Craig. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. You uh, you didn't disappoint me with a bit of random anatomical knowledge. And I am looking forward to bringing some new uh, and updated anatomy and trauma radiology course content with your help to the website in 2024. Yeah, look forward to it, mate. And we'll have to have you back on another time and maybe you could host one and read the article to somebody else, Craig. Something trauma related maybe? Yeah, would love to, but yeah, they're, they're big boots to fill, mate. Oh, I don't know about that. I reckon you'd be pretty good at it. Been a pleasure. See you again soon, mate. Thanks, Dixon. Cheers. Craig and I definitely stuck remarkably on topic throughout that one. I didn't reference any plays or operas this time, and he didn't bang on about space or or sports as he usually does. Yeah, he did mention cocktails, though, and and about that, actually. The last episode, we spoke about the Corpse Reviver, which includes... Corpse Reviver number two, I think it was. Yes, number two. And again this week, Craig mentioned two cocktails, the Manhattan, which is a great, great drink, Uh, possibly too good in just how easy it is to drink more than one Manhattan. But then he also (laughs) mentioned the Cesarac, which is similar to an old-fashioned, but they ruin it by adding absinthe. And as you know, I think absinthe is the devil's drink. And (laughs) it's got an interesting story, though, which I hinted at last week, but I've actually done some reading up on it since because my memory of it was a little bit muddled Uh, and I was mistaken in some pertinent ways about absence so I know we didn't say we would have a spot the fake but I thought I'd create one so that by correcting my mistakes we see if you could uh, spot the fake so here are three three statements about absinthe okay one of these is incorrect go for it so absinthe is made from the flowers and leaves of wormwood Anise or aniseed, which tastes a bit like licorice, and it's why it tastes revolting, and sweet fennel and other herbs. Mm-hmm. Statement two, absinthe contained lead, which led to psychotropic effects, uncontrollable rage and convulsions. And three, absinthe was banned in much of Europe for most of the 20th century. Uh- Funny you should mention absinthe again, because last night I actually had a little bit of absinthe in a in a French martini. I don't think they're supposed to be absinthe uh, in the French martini. Did but you have this, uncontrollable rage and convulsions? I'm not going to talk about it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so number one, it says absinthe is made from flowers and leaves of wormwood, anise or aniseed. Well, definitely tasted like licorice last night and tasted terrible. So <laughs> if that sounds correct, I'm not sure about wormwood but the rest of that sounds good. So I'm going to say that's true for number one. Number two, absinthe contained lead, which led to psychotropic effects, uncontrollable rage and convulsions. I know it caused issues. And last week you did talk about, I'm pretty sure you said lead. Maybe that's the thing you need to correct. And then number three, absinthe was banned in much of Europe for most of the 20th century. I think we talked about that as well, that it was banned for Mm -hmm. some reason. I imagine you're correcting the lead. I reckon the lead 
is incorrect and there's something else that maybe caused the psychotropic effects or there's no or it's a myth there's no psychotropic effects all right let's go through it so uh the first one is true wormwood is actually what gives absinthe its name because the botanical name is artemisia absinthium what's interesting here is that wormswood relative mugwort which sounds like something from Hogwarts, I guess, was traditionally used for the remedy of a variety of complaints, especially those of a gynecological nature. And so the Wormwood genus bears the name of the Greek goddess of childbirth, Artemis. Hmm. And here's a link to space because of the Artemis program. (laughs) So childbirth of going back to the moon. I don't understand why they called it childbirth. Anyway. Uh, So that one's true. The second one was fake. It was not lead which I incorrectly Uh said it was lead. But in fact, it contains thuyul alcohol, which is from wormwood, which in high enough concentration does cause seizures and other problems. Back in the day, it was really high in concentration, up to 260 parts per million, which apparently is not high enough to cause those problems with just a normal drink. But if you really get drunk on it you Mm. can have seizures is that what the artists were doing the bohemian artists yeah that's right (laughs) but modern absinthe is like 30 times less i think it's legislated Mm. at a maximum of 10 parts per million so i couldn't find anything that said that lead was involved that doesn't explain all of the green fairies i saw last night (laughs) (laughs) and the last one was that it was banned mostly because like gin in england in mainland Europe, particularly France, it was cheap and popular and it was caused with lots of um, social harms of excess drinking. And the banning came through the temperance movement. But I thought this was really interesting because in America, the temperance movement led to the prohibition. Yeah. In France, the temperance movement was in league with the wine industry to just reduce the amount of not alcohol, but the amount of spirits being drunk. Mm-hmm. It's like, don't drink that evil spirits, just have our wine. Drink this one. <laughs> so there you go. No lead in absinthe, still the devil's drink because it still tastes like licorice, it which does. is the devil's food. <laughs> now, anything other than cocktails that you oh, wanted to oh. <laughs> chat about in response to this readful episode, Gaylord? Only if I have to. Okay. Well, actually, there were a few. Uh, the first one's a really short one, and that's the fact that that below the base of skull, when you have arterial dissections, they only rarely rupture the vessel. And mm-hmm. you guys sort of talked about that. You, you get false lumens, you get dissection flaps, it can cause occlusions, you can get false aneurysms. And yes, they occasionally rupture, but that's actually quite uncommon. And in the cervical ICA, for example, it's quite common that dissections cause those little uh, outpouching false aneurysms that are contained by the carotid sheath. But intracranially, arterial dissections very commonly rupture and cause usually terrible subarachnoid hemorrhage and very difficult to treat without sacrificing the vessel. Do you know why that's the case, Dixon? Well, I imagine that the intracranial ones don't have much of that adventitial layer on the outside. Yeah, that's right. As soon as the artery pierces the dura, after a a, a little while, a centimetre or so, it basically doesn't have an adventitia. So an artery that's floating around in the subarachnoid space is just intima, media, and then coated with a very thin layer of arachnoid cells. And so once a dissection gets into the wall, there's really nothing much stopping it. And I think that sort of knowledge is so much more satisfying than just memorizing intracranial dissections cause subarachnoid. 
which is just a fact. Whereas mm. this one, it's like, oh, it all kind of makes sense and it ties it together. And This intradural distinction is coincidentally why cricket helmets have actually changed in the last five or ten years. They've added this little extra bit of protection at the top of your mm. neck so that if a cricket ball hits there, that uh, actually unfortunately led to the death of Phil Hughes. He got hit on the oh, side really? of the neck there, just below skull base, and a few seconds later he dropped to the ground, lost consciousness, and was found to have a massive subarachnoid bleed due to a vertebral dissection um, oh, because it got that. you know that intradural segment. So was he this batting or was bit. he a silly man? Yeah. No, was no, he was, he was batting, yeah, just got hit. For our listeners that are not knowledgeable in cricket, and, and I'm one of them really, one of the fielding positions is called silly midon. And that's yeah. the person who stands ridiculously close to the batsman, such that the ball can sometimes come hurtling at them. If the batsman plays a pull shot, then uh, this fieldsman needs to take protective action very, very quickly. Otherwise, they're going to get smacked real hard. Because <laughs> they're like, what, three metres away maybe from the yeah, batsman? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which is far. very silly. <laughs> Anyway, that was that was a slightly depressing story about yeah. Phil Hughes. Have you got anything else to chat about from this episode, Gaylord? I, I do have one other thing. Craig mentioned that his least favourite study was a trauma just before lunch. And I can imagine that, you know, you want to go to lunch and then you've got this long, annoying study to go through. But I think it's probably also not just annoying, but it's probably also when you're at your highest chance of missing something. Yeah. Not just because you're rushing, but possibly because you're hypoglycemic by that stage. And it reminded me of a paper that I read about somewhere some time ago that looked at the rate of granting parole in prisoners by a parole board. And the study looked at the rate of parole relative to the time of day and relative to when these judges were fed. I thought you were going to say they measured their glucose levels. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I managed to find it and it's called um, Extraneous Factors in Judicial Decisions by Danziger et al. from 2011. Mm -hmm. The abstract says, we record the judges two daily food breaks, which result in segmenting the deliberations of the day into three distinct decision sessions. So anyway, so these judges came to work with a full belly of breakfast and worked until morning snack time. And here they describe snack time as the meal is typically served to the judges at the bench and its timing, which is determined by the judges, varies by day. In our sample, the mean starting time of morning food break range between 9.49 and 10.27 a.m. In brackets, snack consisting of a sandwich and fruit. And lasted an average of 38 minutes. Now, two things. Firstly, to eat a snack of a sandwich and fruit and it takes you 40 minutes seems like (laughs) quite a long time. And secondly, it sounds like these judges are like preschool, like kids, that someone comes in and gives them their little snack. Someone blows a whistle and he's like, oh, yes. (laughs) It is the same time, though, having said that, that I go and get myself a coffee. 10.30, that's when I hit my coffee time. Anyway, so then they come back and they have another session until lunch and then they have a session after lunch. This article found the percentage of favorable rulings, meaning you get granted parole, Mm -hmm. drops gradually from approximately 65% at the start of a session to nearly zero within (laughs) each decision session and then return abruptly to 65%. 
after the break. Yeah, so you want to be first after the break. So every time these judges have a nice meal and their glucose is up and they've got a warm feeling in their belly, they're like, yeah, yeah you can go. And then before lunch, they're all hangry and grumpy. And it's like, <laughs> back to jail with you. I'm not sure if this relates directly, but quite often if I have, if I'm in a trauma and emergency and I have a co-reading list to get through in the morning, you know, it's often a really long list, mm. I will use the incentive of going and getting a coffee as my way of getting through the list. So I'll say, all right, once I've done all of these mm. co-reads, I can go and get a coffee. And then I know once I've done that, got the coffee, come back, I'm doing a fresh task. I'm no longer yeah. doing co-reads. I'm now doing some primary re- reporting. I do the same. That psychologically helps me. I think I get through it more efficiently. I, I, I'm less likely to get distracted because I know that I've really got to get through all these. But maybe it could encourage you to cut corners. I don't know. I would love to just grant parole to all of these cases. Yeah, I grant yeah, parole. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. I'd love to see some data on the impact of different times of day on misses in radiology. Mm. Because there's no doubt that when you're getting close to going home and it's Friday afternoon, you know, yeah. there's an incentive there to to speed up a bit. And there must be now with with packs where we, you know, record discrepancies, et cetera, we should have the data at least to look by time of day, maybe. Maybe next hostful you can see if you can find some of that data and mm. present to us. Or even better, if someone knows of that data and just yes. sends us the link, that'll take <laughs> much less time. <laughs> now, anything else to chat about from this well, one? Okay, one last thing, which is only just to echo something that you th- said at the very end, which is where if you're uncertain about a finding or if the study's not quite right, that you shouldn't be scared to image again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because we spend a lot of time complaining about all the stupid requests. There's this idea that we're overscanning constantly. And there's a lot of truth to that. But I think particularly with junior trainees, they sometimes think that therefore that they shouldn't be recommending mm-hmm. additional studies. And in fact, if something catches your eye or we're not quite sure, or the question is aortic dissection or not, which is a really important question, do the study. Don't hesitate. That's not the time to hesitate. We do far stupider studies every day of the week for much less important causes than a radiologist has an inkling that maybe something's not quite right. I I think you just have to have a fairly low threshold when the question is so important to actually make sure the study is able to give you the answer because a study that doesn't give you the answer is actually a bigger waste than a repeated Mm. study. A radiologist asking for a further test is very different to a referrer asking for things that you think are inappropriate because you know, you've, you're know you using your imaging judgment to say, look, I'm seeing this here, but I need more detail in order to make an assessment. It's different to knocking back a request from a referrer. Yeah, that's right. They're very different things. That reminds me of a, a saying that when I was a medical student, there was a, a ED doctor who was visiting from the US. He was a character straight out of Scrubs. He had the full <laughs> white coat, a massive mustache. He was, he was a bit like Ted Lasso as a doctor. <laughs> but he had a saying that was, just because you got burnt drinking soup does not mean you blow on yogurt. And this <laughs> is yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. And after he said that, you probably sat him down and told him your story about how you hate deep teaspoons. (laughs) (laughs) With a passion. Uh, Imagine eating absinthe-flavoured yogurt with a deep spoon. 
That would be awful. <laughs> we better wrap this one up. Gaylard, how can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback. Yep. Send us in uh, any studies that talk about rates of misses in reporting sessions towards the end of a session, pre-lunch, post-prandial, those kind of things. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries and... And And don't forget, what else can people do to help out, Frank? You can also help out by leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Excellent. All right. I'll read the little sign-off here and then maybe we'll play a bit of uh, These Are My Machines. These Are My Machines. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Bye-bye. Stay right. These These Are are My Machines. My Machines. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week. Bye-bye. Unfortunately, that's when we ran into a brick wall. I'm head of the radiology department. You call me in from home to do an abdominal CAT scan that could wait until Monday morning. Well, guess what? It's not happening. Dr. Moyer. These are my machines! Sir. My machines! Whose machines? My machines! How is that helpful? They're mine! Mine! Mine!